You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Andrew McKay. And you're listening to Into the Portal, your gateway to the bazaar. Happy Halloween, everyone. Mm-hmm. We hope you guys had an extra spooky yet safe Halloween. Yeah, absolutely. And we're this... keeping the spooky vibes rolling here because this was supposed to come out yesterday. <laughs> well, but yeah. we, every single year, though, we're always like, I wish Halloween could keep going. So that's what I'm that's what I'm going with with this episode. We're keeping Halloween alive here for you guys. <laughs> yes, because this year we have a Halloween special episode that's taking a deep dive into the some of the spookiest Canadian hauntings and unexplained phenomena from our very own province of BC. There's a reason they call it supernatural British Columbia after all. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. And what we're going to be doing today is getting into some stories that we um, first were like brought to our attention by uh, Barbara Smith. We bought a few of her books on a few of our travels around the province. And uh, she's a folklore researcher, ghost uh, story author. And this first story of the night is sourced from her book, Smith's Ghost Stories and Mysterious Creatures of British Columbia. So let's get into it. So this tale picks up sometime in the early 1900s. And it's following the story of this friendly trapper named Rusty Campbell. Good old Rusty. Good old Rusty. (laughs) That's a classic trapper name right off the Mm. bat for sure. So after years of a lonely existence as a trapper, as it typically would be in that line of work, he happened upon a like-minded fellow fellow, uh, tradesman, fellow trapper, and the two set out on one especially cold winter, as the story goes, to work a really isolated area of the northern territories of B.C., This place had an abundance of wildlife, so in those days it was the perfect spot to set up trap lines. They struck a veritable gold mine, so to speak. Uh, They set up all their trap lines in a very fair and diplomatic way. And Rusty's claim included an area known as Otter Creek. And this sort of meandered down to a place called Surprise City. Or at least it sort of meandered down to the remnants of this place called Surprise City, which is now nothing more than a ramshackled abandoned fort that stood atop a small island that was situated in a bigger river. So history tells that this surprise city, which is now a ghost town, had been built by surveyors that were passing through in what is now known as Atlan District or County. And at one point in its life, it formed a part of the support system for the Klondike Gold Rush. So obviously Mm -hmm. one of the most famous gold rushes in the history of of that time period, right? Yeah, lots of stories from that era, lots of history. And so much darkness too. Over time, there were murmurs and tales about this place that had sprung up about unexplainable encounters 
disembodied voices and the sounds of even a ghostly canoe parties on the river in the dead of the winter night. And Rusty had known of these stories. He knew about this, the strangeness going on around the Ford of Surprise City. And the legend was that those who ventured into its confines were only too happy to leave as soon as they could because of what they were surrounded by. And Barbara Smith noted that, quote, The scuttlebutt among the trappers indicated there was something decidedly unusual about this abandoned settlement. But why? So Rusty had no reservations about this. I mean, at least initially. That is until he had to make a shelter one night right at the fort after realizing that he was way too far to make it back to camp before nightfall with all the furs he had collected that day. The weight of his load was just far too much. Mm-hmm. And by morning, Rusty would have his own unexplainable story of an encounter with a very infamous ghostly canoe party. So after s- settling in for the evening, he was awoken hours later by the banging of canoe paddles and the sounds of an approaching party of men. He could hear their murmuring voices that carried across the freezing cold winter wind. You know, despite things being usually dampened at that time, that would have been unbelievably spooky. But he could hear these sounds coming towards where he had taken shelter. Incredibly, the sounds, which were obviously already strange enough in and of themselves, because Rusty and his partner were destined for isolation that entire winter, was that they were actually accompanied by the spectral apparition of a group of three men. So their voices were even more distinct to Rusty as he sat up and he was staring off into the night. He recalled later on how one voice sounded particularly Scottish Mm -hmm. and seemed to be in the company of a couple of French Canadians. So he watched as the men, they actively unloaded their canoes and attempted to make camp in the night. And he's watching this thinking, this can't possibly be. There's one problem with this massive problem. There was no way a canoe would have been able to have navigated the frozen solid river at that time, nor disembarked as they had with their canoe paddles banging audibly on the shoreline that stood covered in a blanket of at least four feet of snow. So what exactly did Rusty see that evening? Was it, I mean, the ghosts of three intrepid explorers that were completely lost in the wilderness? Was it an echo through time? Going back to our Partridge Creek episode, mm. we, we might never know. We, we will likely never know. But no. This is the little appetizer story, uh, <laughs> if, if, as it were, for our, uh, yeah. What do you think? Of, what do you make of Rusty's ghostly encounter? I really loved this story because it's just like, it brings you back to a lot of those like classic Canadian history tropes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the ghost tales we hear around here. Definitely. Which, do seem to almost be like these these spirits that are replaying past events or something. Yep. That's how I take it. Because, like, obviously this happened, this must have happened in the summer, the scene that was replayed before him. Must have been. It's very cool to think that there's both, there's a an audio component and then there's also a visual component to these uh, apparitions. Totally. And just the idea of apparitions being ones that are that are more active and then ones that are a little bit more of like, yeah, like trapped in time. This reminds me of some of the stories of like Civil War soldiers that people will see in, in certain national parks, right, in the U.S. and stuff like that. Or the Roman the Roman soldiers that are cut in half because the road used to be in a different place. They're not mm-hmm. interacting with people necessarily but they're there it's that like snapshot in time yeah that's what's odd to me yeah it's snapshot in time that's a good way to phrase it because as the story goes and rusty he never made contact with these people what happened was he ended up 
witnessing them, watching them for a little bit. And then essentially what happened was they were just blown away into the wind because it was like it was snowing and it was all like, you know, getting blown around. And, and then they, they just disappeared, essentially. And then he woke up the next morning, didn't even know what he had really seen, stumbled back to, to his actual camp with his furs and uh, basically kept that story to himself for a yeah. while. <laughs> That's a ghostly encounter I think I would be willing to have, though. It's it's a little <laughs> yeah. bit less. It's not in your face. It's not a poltergeist really cool. or anything. Very interesting. I wonder if they were glowing or like because it was winter. There's snow on the ground. Snow makes it a lot easier to see in the night. Yes. And I would imagine maybe there was. He the story goes that there was no storm that evening, so no. there would have presumably been some moonlight too. Right. So maybe they were just lit up by the moon, or maybe they were actually like glowing, glowing. Oh man, it's a pretty cool one though. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah. For the next tale, we're going to head to Vancouver Island for a look into the Dunsmere family's haunted legacy. Okay. And uh, this story picks up with uh, the family of the first premier of British Columbia. So that's like our, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Canadian politics, it's kind of our, our provincial leader. And this was a Scottish immigrant by the name of Robert Dunsmere and his wife, Joan who were both of modest origins, but soon became the pinnacle of wealth and social status on the island and across the province, essentially. And this culminated in the construction of what is known as Craigdorock Castle, which is situated in the Victoria era of Vancouver Island, BC. I love that name so much. It's pretty epic. Yeah. Craigdorock. It brings me back to that whole, like, yeah, like the Victorian era of... uh, what's known as these bonanza castles. But we'll get into that in a second here yes. because, like I said, this was years in the making, empire building in the coal industry in particular. And Robert announced in the late 1880s that he would build the most impressive residence uh, known to date. So what is known as these bonanza castles, these mansions that epitomize the wealth and status of these entrepreneurs that thrived in the early days of a North American history. A lot of them were industrialists, right? Like uh, even the railways, coal, whatever. Gold obviously was huge too. Totally. So the story goes that Robert actually constructed Craig Rock in order to launch his three remaining unmarried daughters into the limelight of their local social life in this elite class of society. So basically, he was a little late to the party. He ended up dying and was never to see the completion of the castle that took about three years to complete. So he died in 1889 and left everything to his wife, Joan, despite promises made to his sons. So this was a little bit of a sticking point. And they felt the burn of betrayal long afterwards because they had worked for their father their entire lives. Yeah. But the story doesn't really end there. There was a lot of drama, a lot of uh, back and forth in the courts and things of that nature. And this actually continued along um, after the death of another son. So his name was Alex. And his will, again, caused more grievances amongst the family. (laughs) And the feuding amongst Joan and her remaining son, James, continued all the while uh, Joan and her daughters were living in this enormous Craigdorock castle. In my mind, I just picture this place with its enormous grand halls and, and rooms and, and many quarters and things of that 
just ringing hollow with the empty laughter of these socialite gatherings that she would hold quite frequently. She was known as like the queen of uh, the social life. I can picture it in my head right now. The, yeah. The ballroom and all the, all the get-togethers. All, yes. all of the, yeah. Downton oh, Abbey style. Exactly. And all of it's just covering over this coldness of this broken apart family. One that actually was never resolved. And she went to her grave with the feuding of her son. They didn't talk for years. And perhaps this is part of the reason why Craig Duroc has some restless spirits and the reputation it does today. <laughs> what do you think of that? I definitely want to go to this place. And that's kind, <laughs> yeah. of, that's kind of why we're doing this episode, you guys, because this is obviously close to home. We're located in BC. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I've, I've, I haven't been to Craig Duroc. And, and what's interesting, Amber's going to get into it, is that this place, most people that go there probably don't know a lot about this side of no. the building itself. That's no. what I, that's what I like about it. You can look it up online and the website is very beautiful. It's very well done. It's like a cinematic Disney masterpiece is what it reminds me of. But the castle staff and the society that helps run and maintain it uh, deny any haunted happenings about Craig Duroc. And there are these tales though that remain about unexplainable encounters with ghosts and these restless spirits that seem to be trapped within their own era, almost as if they're frozen in time, yet coexisting with the living still. Right. So historicplaces.com said that no expense was spared to ensure that Craig Rock was the largest and most elaborate mansion of Western Canada that is of its time. So it was created using a combination of architectural styles and it was very dramatic. So it definitely lends itself to some of these more like haunted leanings. Like sure, even you're going to get that feel. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I guess uh, they really wanted to go for like an old school, like Scottish type uh, castle. So it's very like, what, like Macbeth kind of thing is what I'm imagining. Absolutely, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> And uh, so basically after the death of the family, it sat on the market empty for years and years until 1969 when what's known as the Castle Society took over Craig Rock and began extensive renovations and restoration efforts. And some would say that they stirred up some stuff along the way. <clears throat> As typically happens when you do things like that. Mm-hmm. Because it was also around this time that the workers there began noticing some unusual happenings about the expansive residence. Once, a worker actually reported seeing the vision of a woman's disembodied foot clad in a satin slipper. He was transfixed and watched as this phantasmal foot traversed through the corridor. Uh, The sweep of a ball gown was evident trailing behind in this partial apparition from another era. Again, almost like at another snapshot through time. So it wasn't quite like the Adams family with uh, with thing going around with the hands, like the disembodied foot just making its own way by itself. That's amazing. But but kind of almost reads that way. It kind of does. See a disembodied foot in a slipper. Just a foot. Yeah, like why? Like is is it is is it because same as the Roman soldiers, her her presence in that snapshot has now been cut off from renovations, or did something yeah. horrible happen? Who knows? Perhaps that's a good point. Actually, maybe there was a different. Something different when she was living in that era that's now changed, like, architecturally. That's, a, that's an interesting point. Possibly. Possibly. Mm-hmm. In another confession, a woman employed at the house explained how she herself had come to the realization 
that the dead were living amongst those working there. And she described how these, uh, quote, people of the past are often seen wearing clothing distinctly of another era of the 1800s, such as a maid that actually happened in on a meeting one night. She opened the door, dressed in traditional Victorian-era black-and-white uniform, glanced about the room very cogently, and then went on her way down the hall without a word. I love that. Yeah. And, and you know what? It kind of, well, I mean, it reminds me of a lot of Halloween movies, I guess, we've watched recently because it's just, it would make you wonder when you see this type of an apparition, what it is. Not necessarily who it is, but what it is. Maybe. Because yeah, you're seeing, because we see things based on the lenses we have. We would see a human, a maid. But it's like, that's the, that, that, that's what would make sense in a castle or in an old house or in an old haunted whatever, right? You think it's like a disguise? No, I'm, I'm saying that like, I'm always weary of like, could it be much more than just a, just a, just a peaceful apparition of a maid dust, dusting the, dusting <laughs> the, dusting the drapes, you know what I mean? It's strange, but it's not really anything that has caused anyone harm. It's not nefarious. No, no. Other than maybe a little bit of a sleepless night. <laughs> Perhaps. However... Uh, there is a, the apparition of a little girl that's known to inhabit the basement. And oh, now you're getting freaky. This might have a creepier origin, but no one really knows who she is and why she remains as she does in the dark, cold, stone-walled basement. Perhaps no one except Joan herself, who was the last one of the last inhabitants of the castle. And like I said, this just stood empty until the castle society took over. No real estate broker would take it on. It was just a pariah on the market. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. But most interestingly, too, is the idea that the spirit of Joan has remained with the castle as well, along with all of these restless spirits that roam its many extravagant corridors. So there was one employee of the castle that told of an experience that she has yet to explain, and this occurred in the chambers of Lady Joan, where she resided in her final years. Right. The place is known to be pervasive with an air that's different from the rest of the castle. It's almost as if the pressure has been altered in some way or another. And the story goes that a display case was erected in Joan's sitting room, and it actually displayed a men's walking stick and top hat. The Hmm. case was reportedly locked very securely, with no source of wind or way to disturb the contents within. However, <laughs> it's said that Joan protested at this invasion of her rooms, and she apparently objected to these foreign belongings being placed there. For the next morning, a staff member arrived to find the display knocked off its stand. The lock was examined and found to be still secure, with no source as to what disturbed the interior. Mm-hmm. Mr. Dunsmere, perhaps? Mm-hmm. I mean, whose who's top hat and cane was this? That's an interesting question. It could have been one of the Dunsmere families, I would imagine, because of the fact that it was restored and still speaks to the history of that family today. They're totally. very... They're not, they're, they're an infamous family. They're not notorious, but they're, you know. Oh yeah, no, I, well I mean, if you've been to Vancouver, I mean, there's, there's a million things named after them yeah. beyond just the street names and yeah. stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's parks and whatever else. Sure. And on the island, I'd imagine there's a lot too. Probably. Yes. But crazily enough, uh, this uh, haunted history of the Dunsmere family doesn't end there. But first we'll have a quick word from our sponsor. 
Hey everyone. People always justify putting their mental health on the back burner. I'm too busy. I'll make an appointment next week. Or it's not too bad. I don't need to talk to someone about it. It's fine. But you know what? It's not always fine. And that's why BetterHelp.com is so awesome. First off, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and you can connect with a licensed professional in under 24 hours for professional help, not self-help. You can benefit from the huge advantage of BetterHelp being available on multiple platforms across the globe. So you have the help you need wherever you are, without ever sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room. Time problem solved. This is all on your time. They are 100% committed to you from the get-go, and you'll get matched with the best person for what you need. And it's easy and free to change counselors if the need arises. Amber and I want you, our listeners, to start living a happier, healthier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com portal. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash portal. And we're back. All right, well, before we dive back into the haunted legacy of the Dunsmeres, we just want to throw out a quick thank you to our amazing Yukon patron, Jana. Hell yeah, totally. She had a really awesome review. It was so thoughtful of her. <laughs> Actually, and hey, that's a perfect reference to make. I mean, we we're talking about the, the Klondike a, a second ago in the first story. And yeah. uh, here we go. We got, well, uh, got a... We weren't that far up. <laughs> I, I know, but I had a reference to it anyway. There was a reference to the gold rush and she's up there in the Yukon. So that's, a, that's, a, that's, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. We really appreciate it. And for everyone that has left us a positive review and a five-star rating, we honestly, that just makes our day all the time. And massively even, appreciated. Totally. We just love seeing what people have to say and, and even if it is constructive criticism and yeah. anyways no yeah. for sure no we really appreciate it so if you guys haven't yet you know click those five stars leave a written review if, if you yeah. if you want to that's, that's awesome if you're too. loving the show that's always great totally helps us out a lot uh we didn't really have anything else to say for housekeeping besides uh, again just wanted to reiterate happy halloween to everyone absolutely we hope it was fun and hope you got up to some spooky stuff whether you know obviously it was pretty low-key for a lot of people yeah we hope it was safe for you but you still had a good time we definitely mm-hmm. saw some social media stuff people people were having a good time in a safe way which is awesome so yeah, yeah we hope you guys all had a, had a really great halloween it's always great and we did have our network contest so stay tuned because there's an announcement coming later today on who is winning Winning that awesome little prize pack. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And now let's get into part two of the Dunsmere haunted history. So aside from the ambiguous history of Craig Durrock Castle, there is yet another residence that was built and lived in by the Dunsmeres that has a similar reputation as a spooky spectral stronghold. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So as previously mentioned, the Dunsmere family was headed by Scottish emigrant uh, Robert Dunsmere and his wife Joan, who actually had quite a tumultuous history despite their fabulous rags to riches story. And their family included a number of children, including this James, as we aforementioned in the first part right. of our story. And James actually followed a very similar trajectory to his father. He became enormously wealthy as an industrialist, uh, culminating in the construction of his very own Bonanza Castle, known as Hatley Castle, in 1908. 
and this was on grounds that was originally inhabited by the coastal Salish peoples, the indigenous, uh, and it is also situated about 20 minutes away from modern downtown Victoria. Right. It sat on an enormous parcel of land that was over 300 hectares big. Holy, that's massive. So we're talking over 800 square miles. Not just a little cottage spot. No, it was the grandest. It definitely overtook Crag de Rock in its enormity. And it was said to be James's retirement home for him and his wife, Laura. And luckily enough, he actually did live to live in it. <laughs> yeah, his dad didn't get the privilege. <laughs> Unlike his father. And he had, like I mentioned, an extensive political history. So he actually served as premier. And then he also served as a lieutenant governor until he retired. So this was to retire to an extensive farmland and agricultural project that housed over 100 workers in its prime. Crazy. Mm-hmm. And apparently here, uh, James wanted the exterior to look as if it was a medieval castle. So he wanted it to be his refuge, uh, an escape away from what he perceived as modernity and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. A place where he could spend time, you know, hunting, fishing, and playing the role of the gentleman farmer, according to HatleyPark.ca. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to phrase it. Yeah. But the spooky happenings would take place there. So James and his wife would live there for approximately a decade before his death. And she would go on to live approximately 17 years after him. And all the while, this was a bustling castle. Like I mentioned before, it had one of the biggest staffs in all the province. And after 1937, with the death of Laura, everything ground to a halt. The castle, which had once boasted this staff, stood empty for over three years, crumbling before it was purchased by the Canadian government for a mere $75,000. Wow. Which even in those days was a fraction of what it was worth and what it took to build the entire residence. And said that Laura actually haunts the grounds of Hatley. She's unwilling to leave the residence she resided in for so many years. For reasons that we'll get into in a second here. But she's been seen by the students of what was once a military college after it was purchased by the Canadian government. And it's interesting because a lot of the students, as they were burning the midnight oil, so to speak, described how they would feel an icy, tingling sensation brushing across their faces, only to learn later that these were actually the same rooms that Laura inhabited in her final years. Brushing across their faces specifically too, not just like the room feels chilly or something, but you're being caressed and touched and, and explored. And I have a theory about this because the story goes, or the actual history, I should say, is that Laura and James's hearts were both broken in 1915 after the death of their youngest son, who was known as Jim Boy Dunsmere. And Jim Boy actually ended up hopping the train to New York. He was too impatient. He had actually joined the military, but he was too impatient and wanted to be deployed in the ranks of soldiers fighting overseas in World War I. So he actually took the impetus to go down to New York and tragically boarded the Lusitania, which was one of many vessels sunk by German U-boats, and it killed thousands of people aboard, including Jim, although his body was never recovered. 
So this is where I think Laura, this is why I think she remains there is because she's waiting for him to return. She never actually believed that he died in that. So James accepted his death and went to his grave thinking that this was true. While Laura ended up living for another 20 plus years, 22 years. And then after that, she decided to never leave. And she is known as a strong spirit, as one student's experience attests to. So this story is extra spooky. So this was a male student who was boarding at the military college at the time. But the story goes that this student awoke in the middle of the night to the feeling of someone tugging on his leg. As he looked up, he actually saw the ghost of Laura with her leg in his grasp, or in her grasp, I should say. As he tried to pull away, she yanked back, and a struggle ensued before he was able to free himself, and the vision of her ghost vanished as soon as she let go. (laughs) So I think that he might have reminded Laura of the son she had lost. And because this was a military college, he would have he might have looked like her son. He might have dressed similar because he had been in the army at the time of his death and he was going to fight overseas. So maybe she's just lingering and just hoping. What do you make of that? I I think I would tend to agree with that. And it's almost like rubbing salt in the wound for her. The fact that the government purchased this for a fraction of what there was supposed to be their grandiose retirement settlement. And that ends up being a military college, the way in which her son vanished. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I, you totally reminded me of that. Like, obviously I have read through these stories in preparation for today. The Lusitania, I just, that kind of went over my head. I forgot. It's like one of the most famous sinkings mm-hmm. uh, during the, during the war. And, and, yep. and that's a, that's a pretty crazy way to lose your son. Pretty tragic. This family is kind of just, yeah, marred by a lot of these types of uh, unfortunate circumstances. And they... I think that's part of why these places have the energies that they do. And it really makes me curious to go and experience it for myself. Would you spend, would you spend the night? I don't think they let you. But would you? (laughs) I would try. Would you? (laughs) I would try. Would you for real though? Oh yeah. If it was like a bed and breakfast, I would totally do that. Yeah. B&B. You guys, you guys let us know listening. We will, we'll, we'll get to that again at the end, but it's not even the end of the story though, because it's not only Laura that haunts these grounds. It's actually her husband as well. That's reported to roam the corridors. And in particular, the study is his hotspot. And the story goes again, that because of his heartbreak, he would just spend all of his nights just pining away in the study, which was located on the ground floor. And he endlessly played this one record in particular called Where Is My Wandering Boy Tonight? So he was very, very upset. He couldn't let it go. Neither could Laura. And one story actually goes that she was fed up with him playing this music and one night just stormed into the study and broke the record. So it was a lot of discontent and strife that plagued these people. But it's not just the family. There is also said to be a nanny that haunts the halls of Hatley. And she died many, many years ago, yet remains on the property and occasionally follows families home, so it seems. According to one woman, she related how her family actually went to visit Hatley one day. 
and she had a young daughter with her. And as they were leaving, she started to get a really strange sensation. She couldn't justify the feeling, though, so she just shrugged it off, not saying anything. However, later that same night, she was awoken in the pitch black to the sound of a child's crying. She, like any mother would, ended up bolting to her daughter's room, only to realize that the girl was fast asleep. She went back to her room, only to hear the crying continue throughout the night. Eventually fed up, the couple found a baby monitor, and it was emitting the sounds, yet it was doing so while it was unplugged and with no batteries in the compartment. Oh, God. So was it the nanny trying to, like, was it something to do with that? Because supposedly she felt as though there was something going on. And so the strange happenings actually did continue to plague her, like weird poltergeist type things, like um, stuff getting knocked off shelves when it shouldn't and things moving around and strange noises until she contacted a medium. And the medium told her that there was this presence of a nanny. And she didn't really know what to tell her other than just, be patient and eventually the nanny moved on so that uh that was a little bit of a more uh less dramatic ending than some of the horror movies we've been witnessing these days because that's totally teed up to be just like that like just this sort of like vague nanny who like presumably a nanny for their young son before he was old enough to enlist in the military or something something like that yeah who maybe was heartbroken as well that reminds me almost of the woman in black and like the Mm -hmm. nanny there yeah witnessing witnessing that loss and then being you know who knows maybe even attached to that place later on down the line or whatever obviously that's a fictional story but you know what I, you know what I, what I mean but yeah. who is the nanny spooky to, to imagine it's really spooky. could be good could be bad could go either way <laughs> could go either way. i mean i'm reeling from halloween movies right <clears throat> now and horror movies so it's like you always expect the worst hope for the best yes that's a good policy to have because actually there was a, a more recent happening and this was in may of 2012 at Hatley, and there was documentation of a ghost. And this was actually a photograph that was captured by a member of a ghost tour. So I guess there are ghost tours that do happen to come to these places. Awesome. I, I don't think they're open to them at Craig Rock, but I guess Hatley is a little bit more friendly to that type of thing. But supposedly what they captured was the ghostly apparition of a woman wearing an old-fashioned hat along with the face of a young girl. Hmm. The impression is very faint in this reportedly unaltered photograph, which we will include. It's from the goldstreamgazette.com. So, Interesting. I love that. Yeah, we'll include that. It's a local uh, publication. So today the mansion is now the grounds of Royal Roads University, and it encompasses a lot of different features, and it's open to visitors It includes these formal rose gardens that are done in the Edwardian style, along with over 15 kilometers of walking and hiking trails along the old growth forest that BC is famous for. Might see a Sasquatch around there. Possibly. There is also a historic First Nations site, along with a spectacular view of these Olympic mountains. It's just an incredible place, and I've only seen photographs, but I really want to go visit this seems like an epic location it's so close to us and obviously we've been to the (laughs) island but yeah there's just so much more so much more to see Mm -hmm. and so much more uh darkness to be explored quite frankly now let's get into our final story 
the spookiest of the bunch, perhaps, but we'll let you, the listener, decide. Indeed. (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. We're sticking with Vancouver Island and going to take a look at what's known as the Haunted Todd House, which is located once again close to Victoria, the capital of our province. And I wrote this in here at the top here before I get into the story because going through a lot of a lot of different ghost stories, frankly, and ghost towns and hauntings and mysterious happenings. It's like BC has a ton, but Vancouver Island, I feel like a lot of people who live there or who have visited there from tip to tip, it is absolutely saturated with supernatural energy beyond the Sasquatches lurking in the, in the forest. It's a strange place. It's, you know, it's got a lot going on, not just because it's a place of early settlement, but that definitely ties into it. And that definitely ties into this, uh, this story as well. So this tale takes place on a particular parcel of land that was once owned by this guy named John Todd. According to records of those who knew him in the area, he was an eccentric man, a strange man, not in the kind of way that turned people off outright, uh, but he certainly had a unique personality and was known, known to be that way. He was born in Scotland in 1794 and immigrated to Canada as a young man, and he started working for the Hudson's Bay Company. We've talked about the Hudson's Bay Company before. It's, depending on your position, it's a pretty rough line of work. So this Mm -hmm. is the fur trading empire of the North, and uh, go back and listen to our uh, Franklin Expedition episodes for a little bit of uh, details on that, because we don't really know what his climbing of the ranks was through the Hudson's Bay Company. Hmm. He was, by all accounts, a fairly cutthroat uh, businessman. He was certainly focused on his business, and he did extremely well in the fur trade. He made connections with a lot of different people, which propelled him to the title of Factor-in-Chief Fur Trader. Actually, he was posted at Kamloops, BC, which is just north of us here, about four hours from Kelowna. And he was one of the first appointed members of BC's Legislative Council kind of interesting too. So he was a man in a position of power and this allowed him to settle years later on Vancouver Island in a place just outside the community of Oak Bay. Gorgeous, gorgeous place, extremely sought after nowadays for sure. This was supposed to be his retirement. It was set on this peaceful 460 acre parcel of absolutely lush, tranquil land that was extremely remote, the perfect place to retire. Hmm. Get some privacy, hey? Indeed. Privacy for what, Mr. Todd? Hmm. This all seems fairly natural, right? But the strangeness with Mr. Todd really began with the idea that he had a lot of wives. Hmm. It's believed that over a short period of time, he had at least four wives come and go. Some say as many as six different marriages had occurred. But as a shrewd businessman, you know, it seemed once again as sort of a simply natural cycle to a lot of people, a lot of onlookers watching that because he was so shrewd and so fickle that he might cycle through these wives in such a way. Mm -hmm. We know that Todd was far from a devout Christian, and this was commented on by many people in the community. So the idea of the sanctity of marriage uh, as an open agnostic definitely didn't tie in uh, to his lifestyle. So again, Mm. going cycling through wives kind of makes sense. (laughs) But John would carry on to enjoy his retirement to the onlookers that were living in the area of Oak Bay. He built a French-Canadian-inspired craftsman home. Mm. But one day, at the ripe old age of 94, John passed away. He died inside the home. His express orders after death was that there was to be no formal funeral, no Christian ceremony, no Christian burial. But his wife at the time decided to go ahead with the whole thing anyways. She herself was a committed 
Christian. And so she buried him with a full Christian ceremony. To make things even a little bit more strange, according to a local newspaper archive found later, during the period leading up to Todd's death in 1882, he was openly involved with the spiritualist movement, so very much like the Arthur Conan Doyles of the world around that same time. This was a practice that allowed communication with the dead, and he was known to have participated in seances in the area, so despite being agnostic in a religious sense, he was into some high strangeness for sure. Hmm. He's open, but unconvinced, I suppose, eh? It seems to be that way. At least, I mean, unless he was... It makes you wonder, after however many wives you've had, is he trying to reach someone specifically? Ooh, or is he involved in other types of ritual practices? Possibly. Hmm. Hmm. But going back to the burial itself, so he passes away, he asks for a not traditional Christian burial, he gets it anyway. And as later events would show, this didn't seem to sit well with what would now be a very restless spirit of Mr. John Todd, because immediately after he was put in the ground, bizarre things started to happen around the house. Doors that were closed were said to swing open, doors that were open would slam closed in the presence of people with no one else in sight. There was no reason for this to be happening. Dishes and cups would rattle in the cupboards. Footsteps would be heard throughout the house that were accompanied by a distant and extremely restless voice. Someone pacing that clearly didn't know exactly where they were or something of that nature. Mm. And then sometimes, and possibly the most classic thing, there would sometimes be a rocking chair that was in one of the bedrooms that would continuously rock back and forth as if someone was sitting in it. Very much like the woman in black. So these are all classic mm-hmm. haunting experiences. And it seemed as if Mr. Todd was sticking around the house. Things really kicked off in the early 1940s. So 1944, the home was purchased by a Mr. and Mrs. Evans, who, like most of their neighbors, loved to decorate for Christmas. They were devout Christian families. And the family would hear some mild noises for a time and a few sort of very basic things, but they didn't outright think their house was haunted until one Christmas morning. The Evans family woke up to find their tree and all of their decorations torn from the walls and piled together in the middle of the living room. Off-putting, to say the least. Mr. Todd isn't happy. Clearly not. And we don't know how much he enjoyed Christmas or not, but he's clearly not okay with them uh, and their decorations this time of year. That would freak me right out. Mm -hmm. That's like, clearly it's like, you are not wanted here type of stuff. Yeah, definitely. But things would get even darker from there. Despite already living in the house for a short time, the Evans soon realized that one particular bedroom was always freezing cold. Not just sometimes, but always. Even in the summer, the room was noticeably chilled. And the family came to call this the, quote, eerie room. Now, anytime you have to name a room in your house the eerie room, mm-hmm. it might be time to list because that's that's not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though they, they they still tried to make use of this room later on, which either, wasn't a good idea. Well, yeah, either you move or you call the Ghostbusters, in my opinion. You got to do something like that because, yes, <laughs> things are getting things are getting strange fast. And they continued this way. It escalated from there. There was one day where the window to this bedroom, which had actually been nailed shut when they purchased the home and they left it that way, shattered and crashed to the lawn below without anyone in sight. There was absolutely no one in the room as if there was someone desperately trying to escape, however. So no one in sight, but the window was smashed from the inside out onto the lawn below. Even despite this, they still tried to use the room. So one weekend, guests were invited over, and the bedroom had been spruced up to feel a little bit more comfortable. 
And this was during the war. So the couple had gotten into the habit of inviting uh, servicemen, so military personnel and different people stationed in that area on leave during their weekend their weekend leaves from, from the base. But on several occasions, in the wee hours of the morning, so right at dawn, their guests reportedly fled their rooms without a wink of sleep. The stories were that they had been tormented all night by a horrifying apparition. And on one occasion, the Evans guests claimed to have seen specifically a dark-haired woman bound in chains and shackles. Her face was contorted in a menacing combination, almost as if she was screaming out desperately for help, but almost like beckoning this man towards her at the same time. Mm. Her fingers wiggling like insects in this sort of like beckoning for assistance like fashion. Yet at the same time, she seemed frozen, frozen in time, stuck in some kind of horrifying loop. I mean, that's definitely not something you want to see in your room. No. (laughs) Clearly, there was some kind of energy keeping both John Todd as well as some other type of restless spirit attached to this house. But nobody knew exactly why. Until 1952, there was a discovery that started to shed some light on the strangeness going on at the Todd house. The Evans family had decided to make some upgrades to the home. And essentially, they had had learned to live with the strange activity leading up to this time. But all they really did was simply avoid the eerie room and then accept the noises going on throughout the rest of the house. But then they decided to replace their heating system, and crews were digging in the yard to convert this, and they made a grisly discovery. The men dug up a human skeleton buried in a shallow grave. It was difficult to tell because of the amount of lime used in what was clearly a very quickly covered up shallow burial. The skeleton was only later identified as a young native woman. And it was at this moment that those who knew the rumors would never set foot on that property ever again. There were the typical rumors and opinions about Mr. Todd. As I said before, the records indicated that he was not the best liked man, despite being very well read, coming from a successful family in Europe, being very musically inclined. But he was also considered extremely vulgar, brutish even at times, and generally seen as not very well-trusted or well-liked in the community of Oak Bay. It's also said that John Todd's previous wife was rumored to be a black-haired native woman, and having so many wives in the past, it was kind of tough to keep track of who he might have had with him on that property. But Hmm. he was married, or at least spent time with, someone with that description. Yeah, like on that very remote property too yeah lots of space uh not a lot of people around to hear any screams or help no definitely not and this is where it even takes a slightly darker turn because the woman that he was rumored to have living with him earlier on was believed to have had mental illness of some kind and in those times that was essentially to be deemed insane and the story was that todd locked her in one of the bedrooms chaining her every limb and never allowing her to leave Perhaps trying his own hand at treatment for her insanity. Perhaps even murdering her in the process of this treatment. Or perhaps being the cause of the insanity in the first place. Uh, and that she would just be, I'm imagining to be a, a very unfortunate victim of abuse. Yes. Because, uh, yeah, every, every account of Mr. Todd seems to be very unfavorable. And so the, quest, the question for me is, did his current wife, when he passed away, learn of this? And bury him out of spite? Or was she doing it out of love because she was a true, the true Christian faith? Or was she doing it because she learned 
the truth about her husband or something of that mm. nature to try to disturb his 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 uh, his afterlife. That's right for a horror movie because you can only imagine what she might have possibly experienced on that property during her time there. Mm. And maybe that is why she was almost trying to seal him in like a um, coffin of sanctity, like, you know, a final resting place where he could never escape. Very true. Hopefully, but didn't quite work out. Shortly after this, the sort of uh, the, the feeling of such presence and things started to fade away. There were a few local reporters in the Victoria area that went and spent, spent some nights at the house and claimed to hear footsteps approaching the door, um, other noises that really sound, sounded like there was someone wanting to communicate with them. But of course, whenever they would open a door and all those classic, classic tropes, there was nothing there. So by all accounts, the Todd house has sort of um, died down in its activity. But I wonder if you were to excavate some of the other uh, former areas of this 468-acre parcel that have now definitely been piecemealed off into other communities, Mm -hmm. what might lay below. I wonder if there's uh, houses and other sort of cul-de-sac divisions that have now been built where there's some strangeness going on that's linked back to the Todd house. I Yeah, I would love to dig a little further and see if we can. This is an interesting story, and I wanted to get back to a couple of things that you pointed out along the way because... Uh, to me, it reminded me a lot of another story I heard in the same book from Barbara Smith. And she actually related this account of a tiny, it was along the periphery of what's now a ghost town. And uh, to be honest, I can't remember what part of BC it was at the time. I think it was by Fernie, if I'm not mistaken. But she uh, she told this story about another property, a house that was supposedly had a murky history. There was an old man who had perished in the house years previous, and it was now being rented by a landlord. So he didn't want to live there. And this particular property had a history of people leaving very suddenly. And there was one couple, a young couple, that decided to move in without any previous knowledge of what had happened in this property. And they actually uh, signed on to some very weird terms and conditions with their rental agreement and it included such things as never close a window that's open never open a window that's closed never move anything don't touch the furniture don't rearrange stuff (laughs) and don't add things despite how you may want to because he never explained why but they quickly learned and they had some interesting phenomena but nothing that they could really because they obeyed the rules and they they quickly realized why because there were some presences and this old man in particular he wasn't a murderer per se or a a ruthless businessman like this mr todd but you can imagine right like he was just kind of lingering and he liked things the way that he liked things he's like a scrooge or something very much so that's totally what it makes me think of So, like the christmas decorations and this story is a prime example of how you don't want to mess around and and they definitely did and they (laughs) they saw what happened so i'm glad no one was hurt i we chose these stories because of their i don't know more jovial nature i guess they're Uh, just fun classic ghost stories there's nothing too morbid about them like sure we uh, yeah it's haunted history it's haunted history of a place that we're from so we wanted to share it with you uh, and and also because this is going to kind of kick us into high gear to go maybe visit some of these places when it's a little bit safer to do so soon. Yeah, because we're going to be within province probably for a while. For a little while. So mm-hmm. yeah, you, we'll, we'd like to bring bring you guys some more high strangeness from BC because this is just a taste. This is just a taste. Yes. 
So we definitely want to know what you guys think, though. Which was your favorite of these stories? What do you think about Mr. Todd? What do you think about about uh, the Trapper story off the top and the Dunsmeres mm, and, mm-hmm. and some strangeness? I mean, we got into a lot of similar a lot of these similar themes with our film Friday and the Woman in Black and the idea of restless spirits tied tied to to physical places and how far from those places they can venture. Uh, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. how specific does it get? Can it get? And the difference between a, a straight apparition that has a little bit more agency versus a um, a time a time slip or or, or seeing a, a snapshot in time, which is very much like we got into again. I'm always hearkening back to old episodes, but with like Partridge Creek mm-hmm. and whether or not dinosaurs can be apparitions the same as we yeah. see humans, right? Uh, but it is very fascinating. There's definitely some strange physics at play that we can't comprehend. Might have to get back to Chris Cogswell, see what he thinks about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we want to know what you think, and uh, we've really enjoyed ourselves. We, Again, I ought to say it, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. And uh, yeah, another, what, 160, or sorry, 364 days and... Uh, <laughs> 24 hours. How many hours? Yeah. How <laughs> many hours? Off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's pathetic. <laughs> oh, man. But as always, thank you so much uh, to all of our listeners and all of our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you guys so, so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, check us out on Patreon if you haven't already. Follow us on Instagram at Into the Portal Podcast, at uh, Into the Portal One on Twitter, at Into the Portal Podcast on Facebook. Come follow us, hit us up, chat with us on there. We love hearing from you guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, as always, until next time on Into the Portal, your gateway to the bizarre. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.